What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Let me run this by my lawyer is a really helpful phrase to have in your back pocket. Legal Shield has been giving legal peace of mind for over 50 years. They connect you to a vetted law firm in your state for an affordable monthly fee. Want an experienced set of eyes on a contract's fine print? Or you finally want to get that will done? Legal Shield has a dedicated group of lawyers who have your back, no matter what the future brings. Sign up today at LegalShield.com forward slash iHeart. PPLSI does not provide legal representation or advice. See a plan for complete terms. This summer, click into cordless power with Memorial Day savings at the Home Depot. Tackle more than half an acre of grass with the convenience and gas-like power of the Ryobi 40-volt battery-powered mower. And keep your flower beds looking fresh with the 40-volt cordless string trimmer. Then clear leaves and debris with the 40-volt leaf blower. No cords, no gas, no hassle. Click into Memorial Day savings happening now at the Home Depot and on homedepot.com. How doers get more done. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, if you're down, he'll pick you up. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today is going to be part one of a two-part series we're doing on one of the most important life-saving technologies of the past couple centuries. Yeah, we're talking vaccines. Yeah. Saving literally millions, countless lives, you could say, because there's no way of knowing or the other, but but clearly, yeah, they might have all gotten better anyway. Yeah, probably not all of them. Pro- probably not. But maybe, statistically speaking, maybe a few. But at any rate, we know that millions of people are alive today because of vaccines. Yeah, and we wanted to cover it because it's been an interesting journey seeing how the public relationship with the science of vaccines has changed over my lifetime. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember when I was a kid, vaccines just being. Um, 
being a kind of uncontroversial part of medicine, as far as I knew, maybe I wasn't aware of whatever controversies may have existed then. Right. I think and they were relatively controversial, uncontroversial for the entire span of their existence up until like the nineties. Yeah. At uh, least, at least in, unless you count like the first few decades of vaccination, in which case there was some contention, but well, that's because they didn't work <laughs> then <laughs> once they were established from yeah. that point forward. Yeah. People really didn't have a whole lot of uh, contentious things to say until uh, the nineties, but we'll, well go into that in, probably more in part two. Yeah. Uh, but one of the things that's interesting to look at from our perspective on vaccines is that I, I think the public has sort of lost track of the uh, the progress of vaccines and right. the future projections about vaccines mm-hmm. because we live in a climate now where news stories about vaccines tend to be about the political controversy, people who, you know, activist groups who are opposed to vaccines for some reason, instead of about what new things vaccines could do in a medical sense. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So we've got a lot to say about vaccines. And in this episode, we're really going to be looking. It's 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 almost like it's a, a stuff you missed in history class episode instead of forward thinking episode. Yeah, yeah. We're talking about the future of vaccines, and by the future, we mean the past. Right. In, in part one. Yeah. In part one. Yeah. In part two, we're going to go into some of the new techniques that are being developed, and some of the the new ways that this sort of technology is going to continue to change our lives. Uh, and you know, but but right. In this first episode, we'd like to clear up a little bit of the confusion, perhaps, about what vaccines are, how they work, uh, how they have have worked and what they are doing for us right now. Yeah, exactly. So we have to have a basic understanding to work from. So at the very beginning, if you want to take a a super bird's eye view, vaccines essentially are a method of uh, teaching our immune systems how to respond to specific pathogens, specific disease-carrying microbes. Yeah, I I tend to think about vaccines sort of at two levels of resolution. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of them is the specific sense in which most of the time, especially with with infectious diseases, it's referring to using a damaged or killed version of that disease in order to teach your body's immune system how to respond to it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then there's also a broader sense of looking at the concept of vaccination as essentially a preventative measure in medicine that gives you resistance or immunity to a condition or disease before you get it. Yes. Oh, so right, it's right. a preventative. And yeah, inoculation. It's pre-therapy. Right. Mm-hmm. And also it's, it's not just for the individual, right? You know, talking about vaccination, this is really for the good of large groups of people because often we're talking about diseases that can be contagious. Now, not all diseases that you would get vac- vaccinations for are contagious, mm-hmm. but several of them are. And you would like to have a vaccinated population to prevent that kind of outbreak at reaching an epidemic, you know, proportion if possible. And just just to be clear, when I'm saying diseases that aren't contagious, I'm talking about human to human contagion, right? Some diseases uh, you ca- you catch from other sources like uh, malaria is spread through uh, mosquito bites, mm-hmm. but not through human to human contact. Mm-hmm. And, and we don't have a vaccine for malaria. Yes. Yeah, spoiler alert for part two. But yes, exactly. We do not yet have a vaccine for malaria. And there's very good reasons why we mm-hmm. have not yet developed one. We'll talk about yeah. that in part two. Uh, but we do have one for shingles. Yes. 
shingles being uh, the same uh, actual virus that causes chickenpox, but the shingles variant is not human-to-human contagious. I, if I were to develop shingles, I would not be able to pass it on to my coworkers here. I would just be in a lot of discomfort. Uh, so there are different types of uh, diseases, and both bacterial and viral diseases uh, are are represented among the vaccinations that we can yeah. get. Yeah, it's not just one or the other. You know, we talk about antibiotics. That's typically something you would use for a bacterial infection, but uh, not only a viral one. something you can use yeah. for a bacterial infection, right? So, in this case, vaccines could be used for either. Mm-hmm. Um, and when in the case of malaria, that's parasitic. But again, we'll talk about that more in part two. So you might think, all right, well, how far back does this does this idea date? Well, I'd imagine that before we had vaccines, somebody had to ob- observe that for some diseases, most people only got them once. And in fact, that did happen. And the, one of the earliest records we have dates back to 429 BCE. And that was when a Greek historian whose name I am going to spell and then attempt to say... It's Thucydides. Thucydides? Is that it? Yeah. I, I've never ever heard it before. Thucydides? Thucydides? Come on. He's probably talking about smallpox in Athens, right? Look, I was a Shakespearean scholar. I had little Latin and less Greek. So uh, Thucydides then. At any rate, Thucydides observed in 429 BCE that people who were exposed to smallpox and recovered did not seem to get it again, whether they were around lots of people at smallpox or not. Uh, and it was this idea that kind of eventually evolved. And what's interesting is that it evolved in different places around the world, more or less at around the same time. We don't have a record of it originating in one part of the world and then spreading, like the knowledge spreading of how to make a practical application of this knowledge. Uh, It may very well be that it independently was developed in various areas uh, around the world, more or less in the same time frame. But there do seem to be ancient civilizations that figured out how to make use of this observation. Yes. Not just kind of, hey, that's an interesting fact. You can yeah. only get smallpox once, but thinking that maybe if we, you know, kind of scrape off somebody's smallpox scabs and jam them up your nose, that might help you. Similar to that, not quite that level, but yes. Uh, so not this, far off. This is the predecessor to vaccination that is called variolation, or generally called variolation. There are some other names like engrafting that I'll talk about mm-hmm. later. There, it's essentially the same thing. Yeah, I've read this showed up in like China and India. Yeah, and, and Africa. Africa. Yeah. yeah, it happened uh, happened to show up in a lot of different places all around. Again, the same general time frame. But variolation involves pretty much what you were talking about. You would take someone who has not yet been infected by a disease like smallpox. And you would uh, end up scratching their skin and then introducing some infected material, usually scabs for, or possibly pus, from someone who already had contracted a weakened version of smallpox. Someone who was had a mild case. Someone, yeah, who was surviving. Yeah, who had it but was doing okay. Yeah, someone, but, but had it enough to have some scabs. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, that's a basic symptom of smallpox. Oh, yeah. You know, it's not like, it's not like, oh, well, they've got smallpox, but don't worry, they have the non-scabby kind. It was, at any rate, uh, it was, it was taken from people who had the mild cases because the thought was, well, it's more likely to be less deadly than the people who had really, uh, you know, debilitating and often fatal cases of smallpox. Mm -hmm. So then they would expose the cut 
uh, to um, the healthy person uh, to the healthy person to this infected material, essentially rubbing the infected material, sometimes uh, using a lancet to in, 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 uh, introduce infected material in underneath the skin, mm-hmm. um, essentially injecting it into the bloodstream of the uninfected person. Hot. The uninfected person then would become an infected person. <laughs> this was the process of going from uninfected to totally infected. But uh-huh. it would normally result in another mild case. And uh, more often than not, certainly more often than someone ca- catching the disease naturally mm-hmm. through person-to-person contact or whatever, um, would recover. And so then once they recovered – they, they would never get it again. Yeah. No matter what, how powerful the strain was, uh, they wouldn't get that particular disease again, specifically smallpox. Um, the Chinese were regularly performing variolation treatments by 1000 AD, and this spread probably outward from these individual communities, not necessarily from, uh, you know, from, from east to west, although that did eventually happen, but much, much later. Uh, so the Chinese uh, physicians, what they would typically do, is drain lymph from a patient who had a mild case of this disease and put that in a bottle. And mm-hmm. the lymph would dry out, and they would usually wait a couple of weeks before they would use it. And this actually had the effect of either killing or rendering inert most of the virus inside that sample, which is a basic idea that's used in vaccines today, is using either uh, uh, attenuated or dead versions of the pathogen and uh, just so happens that they were doing it and and it worked. It was, it was an effective treatment. Mm-hmm. Bully for them. Yeah. Yeah. So if we if we fast forward to the early 1700s, that was when uh, inoculation, this idea of introducing infected material in a healthy person to prevent them from catching something later. So you say early 1700s. That sounds like we're not to Jenner yet. No, right? we're not to Jenner yet. There was a lady by the name of a lady, as in a peer, by the name Lady Mary Wortley Montague. Is is lady on the same level as what Lord? Yes, yes. Is that a level or is that just a general? It's a peerage. It's part of the peerage. Um, okay. So she was the wife of a British ambassador to Turkey, and observed while in Turkey this practice of uh, variolation. She brought it back to England. Uh, she called the practice engrafting. And she had a very um, personal reason for, for practicing this. Her brother had died from smallpox. And she herself had ca- had caught smallpox, survived, but she was terribly scarred oh, by wow. it. Yeah. Uh, she was someone who had been renowned for her beauty in her youth. And she was determined to make certain that her children did not suffer the same fate mm-hmm. as her brother or herself. And so she used this approach. Um, in this version, you would take pus from a blister that was formed on a, that, you know, a, if someone who had smallpox mm-hmm. had developed and, uh, preferably a mild case of it. Mm-hmm. And then introduce it into the bloodstream of an uninfected person using a lancet. So it, again, ended up kind of catching on. I mean, it wasn't infectious or anything, but it did uh, catch on in England and was, uh, over time, a pretty popular way of treating people so that they would not catch smallpox. But it came with some 
slight drawback. Uh, yeah, as you may be able to imagine, it, anyone who heard, you know heard us describe this process and immediately went, yeah. that's a really good way to catch lots of other diseases from somebody. And in fact, it, it was a good way to yeah. catch your other. So if you're... If the person who is suffering from a mild case of smallpox also happened to be suffering from something like syphilis or tuberculosis, then there was a strong possibility you would pass Rubbing their bodily tissue into your bodily tissue. Yeah. Uh, Hey, that just sounds like even more vaccines, right? (laughs) Probably didn't work that way. Didn't work that way for tuberculosis or syphilis. No. Not all diseases uh, are are ones that you can use this particular approach to – to become immune to those uh, diseases. Well, yeah, and it wouldn't follow that if you had a particularly weak version of smallpox that your versions of those other diseases would be weak strains as well. That's right. also true. So, uh, yeah, this this was an issue. Now we skip ahead to 1796, and that's where we get to Edward Jenner, who is often credited as being the person who, quote-unquote, discovered vaccines. Uh, it's a little bit of a misnomer, a little bit yeah. of misinformation, but usually, anytime you say that a single person discovered a thing, yeah. it's it's sort of ignoring the the hundreds of years of, of right. scientific history that right. backed their discovery. Uh, I think the best we can say is that Jenner was the first to really apply the scientific method oh, yeah, to yeah. testing a hypothesis to prove the underlying uh, foundation was sound. Yeah, and, and don't get me wrong, like he did amazing work, like, sure. especially considering that it was 1796, y'all. Yeah, and he, he threw in his personal, like, fortune is probably being too too grand a word. He he put a lot of his time and money into this to the point where he was, uh, you know, not doing so great in, in as far financially speaking while he was uh, working on this. But he believed in it wholeheartedly, so he continued to pursue it. Uh, he had been inoculated against smallpox when he was a kid using the variolation technique. Yeah, but so there is a distinction to make with Jenner's technique versus the variolation technique, right? Yes. Which is the variolation technique says. Let's take a weak version of smallpox and give it to you and hope it doesn't kill you or make you really sick and, yeah. and you'll become immune. Jenner found a sort of run around this, right? He was like, well, what if we took a similar disease that doesn't really hurt humans? Yeah. I mean, cowpox does create some pretty nasty pustules, but it tends to – usually it doesn't last – that long and it's rarely serious it's kind of along the lines of like a, a chicken pox for someone who's young mm-hmm. right you know obviously as you get older if you have never had chicken pox it can be a more serious health hazard but uh, uh yeah he had heard these tales about dairy maids who had suffered cowpox but then never ever suffering from smallpox even if they were exposed to it um and so he started to form this hypothesis that perhaps whatever caused cowpox was similar enough to smallpox that if you were to uh, expose someone to it in this approach, they would then be immune to smallpox as well, which would be incredibly helpful, right? So he ended up taking infected material from a woman named Sarah Nelms, who was a dairy maid who was suffering cowpox, and uh, and ended up... uh, Introducing it into the bloodstream of a young boy named James Phipps, and then later used the variolation technique to introduce smallpox to the boy's blood, and he was completely unaffected. He didn't get sick. So in other words, it was taking the the variolation approach, like still trying to safely introduce a mild case of smallpox to the boy. 
to see mm-hmm. if, in fact, he would have the symptoms because often people would have symptoms for a short while, recover, and then they'd be immune. The boy never even developed symptoms, mm-hmm. thus showing that, oh, this cowpox approach is working. Now, did the boy know what was going on here? <laughs> Yeah, well, either, this, this is a little bit less controlled than. Uh, well, either way, <laughs> variolation would have been the method to sure. inoculate him against smallpox. Yeah. <laughs> so it turned out that you know even if it even if the cowpox thing hadn't worked, this is this was the accepted way to inoculate someone against smallpox. Yeah. Um, s- probably still a little ethically questionable <laughs> today, but but. You know. but, but your point is <laughs> like, that the entire past is ethically questionable. Today. Yeah, Pretty totally, much, yeah. yeah. Uh, and so, uh, you know, keep in mind, Jenner himself, he was not just a, a, a physician, not like a country doctor or anything. He had actually studied under some of the most famous surgeons in England at the time uh, and had even studied other fields of science, including biology. He had helped classify species that were brought back by Captain Cook after Cook's first voyage. Oh, wow. Oh. Yeah, so he was uh, very much involved in the scientific community, and he wrote up a paper about how he used cowpox to uh, inoculate against smallpox and and uh, uh, ended up submitting it to the Royal Society, but they rejected the paper. They did not think that it was worthy of publication. And so he would end up self-publishing a booklet, uh, <laughs> something that uh, I, I can completely – A tradition un- still kept alive today. Exactly. Uh, and I'll his- show you – his booklet uh, had a catchy title. It was An Inquiry into the Causes and Effects of Variole Vaccinae, a disease discovered in some of the western counties of England, particularly Gloucestershire, and known by the name of cowpox. That just rolls right off the tongue, doesn't it? Does. It does. Yeah. Oh, wow. I'm putting this together in my brain right now, and I've never realized it before. <laughs> Spanish for cow is vaca. Yeah. Uh-huh. Probably connecting to Latin. Vaca yeah. meaning cow, meaning the word vaccine comes from the word for cow. Yeah, cowpox is, uh, uh-huh. in Latin is vacin- vaccinia. So he named the process vaccination. So vaccination refers specifically to using cowpox to protect against smallpox, but has been since broadly applied to this procedure for all sorts of different diseases. But yes, originally, it all had to do with cowpox and smallpox, uh, which I thought was pretty interesting. Mind detonated. (laughs) (laughs) I tried to throw in at least one little cool truth nugget that's going to really get you, you know, right, right, right in, right in the thinking parts. (laughs) That was my goal. At any rate, um, so Jenner faced a little bit of opposition to his approach because obviously anytime you come up with a different method of doing something than the standard method, there's inertia to overcome, right? But other physicians soon began to employ this vaccination technique. And by 1800, the practice had spread from UK to Europe and even to America. Uh, Thomas Jefferson himself became an advocate for vaccinations. After Professor Benjamin Waterhouse of Harvard University demonstrated its efficacy. So uh, Waterhouse had received a sample that ultimately came from Jenner of uh, the cowpox um, uh, material that mm-hmm. could be used for vaccinations. Uh, it got to him by way of another scientist, but that's how it got over to America. And uh, Jenner continued to push for vaccination, often, again, at his own expense. 
but eventually was uh, recognized by a British parliament for his contributions to the the health and welfare of the nation. And they ultimately awarded him with about 30,000 pounds sterling, which was no small sum. Yeah, that's, that's not a, that's not a joke right now. No, it's, it's a healthy dose of cash right now. Uh-huh. Back then it was, you know, a, a, a an enormous sum mm-hmm. of money. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and by 1840, vaccinations had completely replaced variolation in the UK. In fact, variolation had become prohibited. So you could only go forward with vaccination at that point. Uh, and again, Jenner was not the first guy to try this out. There were some other records that predate his work, but he was the first to apply the scientific method to establish that, in fact, this was a sound method of preventing disease. But this is still before we had realized that diseases are caused by germs. Mm-hmm. Germ theory was not a thing which means that there was still the risk of cross-contamination where you could still introduce something like syphilis or tuberculosis in this process. So uh, just, just because people weren't sterilizing equipment equipment essentially. Yeah. Uh, it was it wasn't until like the 1850s that germ theory really caught on, like like really really took hold. Yeah, so for Which is so crazy to me thinking that that's it, that it was that late. Yeah. Yeah. So so yeah, and and I mean, you you can read accounts in the Civil War of doctors who who just didn't take to that whole idea of washing up between patients. Yeah, I mean, why bother? You're just going to get your hands bloody again. Yeah, uh, but at any rate, you know, this is a still was quite an issue here. But uh, but we also had debates that uh, raged on other elements of vaccinations, and they went on well after the 1800s. So, for example. Uh, there was the debate about the merits of a live culture of whatever the pathogen is, whether it's viral or bacterial, versus uh, a dead sample, a dead or, or inactive sample. And uh, depending upon the vaccination, that actually does make a big difference. Yeah. But a big debate that was right on this this very uh, very subject was between Jonas Salk, who was the uh, the man who essentially created the polio vaccine that all but wiped out polio, um, although there's still some parts of the world where polio is still very much a problem. Uh, and another physician by the name of Albert Sabine, who uh, argued for a live polio vaccine as opposed to a dead polio vaccine. Salk went out on that one, by the way. <laughs> so at any rate, um, so that that's the history but that doesn't tell us exactly what is happening in our immune systems when we encounter one of these pathogens, whether it's from a vaccine or some other source, like if we're actually catching a disease. So we, in order to understand how vaccines work, we kind of have to look into the immune system of the human body. Mm-hmm. So to understand how our immune system works, uh, I've got a cast of characters that we need to familiarize ourselves with. The dramatis personae, if you will. Yeah, yeah. Of our immunodrama. The cast of characters from Inner Space or the Fantastic Voyage. Does does not does not have uh, Inner Space. I say I was Martin Short, right? <laughs> which is which? They both are both are tiny people going in the body, right? Yes. Okay. Inner Space was the comedy. <laughs> But at any rate, uh, so one of the first things we have to discuss, uh, there are several different subtypes of, of white blood cells actually uh, play an important part here. We have uh, macrophages. Uh, you guys know what macrophage means, right? It means big eater. Yes. Macro being big and phage being to eat. So these are, these are cells that quote unquote eat. 
other cells. They consume other cells uh, or other material. It doesn't necessarily mean another cell. So they eat things like microbes, like foreign microbes that come into the bloodstream. But they also eat other stuff like just detritus, you know, the garbage that mm-hmm. accumulates in our bodies. If we didn't have these, we would our, our blood would get pretty toxic pretty fast. Yeah. Uh, then we have uh, the idea of antigens. When a macrophage, macrophage eats um, a microbe, it leaves behind, it saves a, a, a special part of that microbe called the antigen. Uh, they, they're actually molecular markers. Mm-hmm. That are in a cells. little like proteins. Yeah. Yeah. It's essentially kind of an, like an identifying badge mm-hmm. that says this is what this thing is. Uh, and antigens are what alert the immune system that a potentially harmful foreign being is present in the body. So this is what sets off the red alert. Uh, inside of your your body when your immune system starts to really kick in and you start feeling sick. Mm -hmm. uh, This is what is going on. It's identified that there's something hinky going down. Yeah. So uh, antigens are pretty interesting. Uh, When the macrophage eats a microbe, it saves that antigen, which helps your immune system recognize future infections from that same pathogen. It's right. it's the body's equivalent of the wall where you put up the do not accept checks from this person. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. And and I I can't overstate how completely rad this process is. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's the like official scientific term is rad uh, because the cells in your immune system make these these antigens part of their own genetic code and then use intracellular communication to spread word about that antigen. It's it's really beautiful. Uh, so let's talk about it. Yeah, yeah. So now we've got some other white blood cell types we need to talk about. Lymphocytes. Uh, th- this is also part of the immune system, obviously. And within lymphocytes, we have two broad categories of cells, T cells and B cells. Uh, T cells are thymus cells, and they can run either offense or defense. So they're the Iron Man players in the immune system, right? They can switch off. Um, actually, technically, you've got two different types. But <laughs> in the offense mode, what they focus on are human cells that have been infected by some sort of pathogen. A lot of pathogens are essentially uh, invading human cells, overtaking the molecular machinery inside the cell. In to, order to – for their own dark purposes. Right. Usually to generate more of themselves. Right. Especially in the case of viruses. Viruses, yeah. Yeah. So it's all about, hey, let's use the body's machinery against itself and make more of us, y'all. And so that's what tends to happen. So T cells – they wage chemical warfare on your body's infected cells. So they're cells that originally belonged to you, mm-hmm. but now have been compromised by the enemy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's time to carpet bomb. Yeah, it's to eliminate with extreme prejudice. Yes. And uh, and the idea being that if you can kill the host cell, then the, the pathogen will not be able to multiply and you can get the upper hand on an infection. Uh, defensively, T cells secrete chemical signals that alert the other elements of the immune system to the presence of a harmful microbe. And this is called cell-mediated immune response. And uh, then you have the B cells. B cells are responsible for making antibodies. Now, antibodies are molecular weapons that lock onto antigens on microbes. So you can think of it like lock and key or a jigsaw puzzle where a particular antibody will fit snugly against a particular antigen, Mm -hmm. which means that not every antibody works on every antigen, right? If a disease – if you come in contact with a specific disease – and your body has not ever encountered that before, the antibodies it produces won't fit 
that disease. Not initially. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, these cells are running around going like, oh, I'm trying to help, I'm trying to help, and nothing is working. Yeah, or it, it's kind of like you're going through all of your keys and none of your keys are fitting the lock on yeah. your front door. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's that kind of thing. And like without that compatibility, you can't actually have the immune system kick in. Now, when it does work, essentially it kind of gloms on there and uh, and renders the microbe inert, unable to harm any any of the cells. So when a microbe enters your body, the macrophages are on the case. They begin to attack microbes. They, they hang out all over the body, the macrophages. They're mm-hmm. pretty much localized to whatever area they are already in. Um, and then they also send out the alert to T cells, which start, they, they kind of gravitate toward the lymph nodes. But T cells will come into play and uh, let, the, you know, really get the word out to say to the immune system, hey, here's what's going on and here's how we need to respond. Uh, helper T cells then emit the uh, chemical signals that alert the immune system and B cells that produce antibodies that are compatible with that microbe's antigen divide into large plasma cells. Those mass produce the appropriate antibodies that bind with the antigens, kind of gumming everything up, and it renders the antigen or the, 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 the microbe. microbe, rather, thank you, from being able to infect a cell. And that's called humoral immune response or antibody response. But it ain't no joke. No, it's not humorous. It's just humoral. (laughs) So then the killer T cells target all the cells that have already been compromised. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is part of why you feel so bad when you're sick, apart from the symptoms that are specific to whatever pathogen you've been exposed to. And when your body, though, though, I think it is sort of a general principle that a lot of the reasons you feel bad when you're sick are immune responses rather than the disease itself. A lot of it is because, yeah, your body will, you know, do several things in order to fight off diseases, and not all of them make you feel hunky dory. In fact, most of them don't. Oh, sure, yeah. yeah. But but it's important because without that process, then you would be much more vulnerable to these pathogens. Uh, so then once your T <laughs> you don't want a pacifist immune system. No, you, no. you definitely want you definitely want a, a good like a cling good, on, cling on immune system. Exactly. Yeah. A good offense is the best defense. Yeah. Um, <laughs> when your body's T and B cells have are able to render inert microbes faster than the microbes can reproduce, that means you're beating the infection. Mm-hmm. You're winning in that that war. But that can take some time, right? A particularly virulent pathogen might be able to replicate itself very quickly. And so, you know, the initial stages might be pretty touch and go depending upon the type of disease. Now, once your body fights off the disease, some of the T cells and B cells convert into memory cells, which retain this information about the disease and can rapidly produce the appropriate antibodies, uh, which is why it's easier for you to fight off or even entirely resist future infections from the same strain. But there's a big caveat here. Strains can sometimes mutate. Some some mutate much more readily than others. Right. Influenza being a big one, right? Mm-hmm. And when it mutates enough, it it's essentially like putting on a disguise. And the antibodies don't recognize it anymore. And you have to go through the whole process all over again. So uh, some diseases mutate so rapidly that like like common cold, for example. Oh yeah, you yeah. That's so that's why you can can't... you can get the cold like four or five times in a row. Yeah. Uh, just because it's a different version. Yeah. Your body it, is completely unprepared to deal with this new version. That's why we can't vaccinate against it. I mean, there's there's hope that because often there's a little bit of the protein chain that remains the same from mutation to mutation. 
uh, that maybe one day we'll take advantage of that, but we'll talk about more of that stuff in part two. Yes. So uh, with a vaccine, you know, we've talked about that's the immune response to to a disease. Yes, yes. So so that is how all of that is how your immune system works. Yeah. Vaccines mimic an infection, mm-hmm. right? It's a purposeful introduction of. Uh, of a pathogenic material. Essentially, they give your body a practice round. Yeah. 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 So, uh, you, you introduce a weakened or dead strain of some sort of pathogen into a, a patient's bloodstream, which kicks the immune system into gear. Uh, the, it responds just as it would with any other kind of infection. And the result is, once that has run its course, your body is now able to produce the proper antibodies for that particular antigen eventually. Uh, yeah, yeah. It doesn't happen instantaneously. It takes a few weeks to build up this response. Right. So if you've ever said, I got a flu shot and then like a week and a half later I had the flu, that flu shot gave me the flu. Probably not. In fact, almost definitely not. But the problem is that when you get that vaccination, because it takes time for your body to produce the pro- appropriate antibodies in quantities that can make you immune, mm-hmm. you, you're still vulnerable. So you could still catch the flu from your buddy who happens to already yeah. have it. So, so don't. So, lesson here is that if you get the flu shot, don't go out and start licking doorknobs in the house of someone who has the flu. Right. Yeah, I always, I always. Have I mean, the, maybe <laughs> don't lick people's doorknobs anyway, because that's just creepy. Say, I got to stretch a time in the year that I, I have a strict no doorknob licking policy, and outside of that, it's you know flexible rules. Sure. Yeah, but you still want to participate in your influenza cuddle puddles, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. So, no. so just be be careful for a few weeks after you get a vaccine. Is all is all we're saying, right? Yeah, and this is also why, like, if you're going to travel, you want to make sure you schedule the vaccinations for what it, you know. If, if you're going to travel someplace that has particular uh, diseases prevalent in that area, you want to schedule your vaccinations well ahead of time before mm-hmm. you actually, you know, not the day before you get on the plane. Um, that might not be a great idea. Okay, so earlier you mentioned that there are lots of different types of diseases that we can vaccinate against. Yes. So it seems logical to assume that there are lots of different types of vaccines to deal with the different types of diseases. There are, in fact, lots of different types of, di- of vaccines to deal with different diseases. And some of them, uh, again, it's one of those things where through through very careful experimentation, we were able to determine which version works best for any particular uh, pathogen. And some of these also can be used in conjunction with one another, uh, depending upon how you're trying, you know, what diseases you're trying to prevent. Yeah. Um, now, I've always wondered why they can't just uh, inject some of that antibacterial soap or Listerine into you when you're getting sick. Do you also wonder why that you can't just drink antifreeze when it gets cold? Yeah, that's a good question, too. <laughs> Toxicity is still a thing, Joe. <laughs> Toxicity is something that we can't just just ignore. Okay, okay well, you can't do that. We, we no. got to go with this this okay. thing we've talked about earlier, where they put some of these things that are going to harm you in your body for a practice round. Yeah. Now they might be alive or they might be dead, right? Yeah. So your your first kind subtype of vaccine would be live attenuated vaccines. Uh, attenuated meaning weakened. Exactly, and this would uh, have a you know a live virus or some weakened strain of bacteria, depending upon what type of vaccine you're talking about, uh, that you would then introduce to a, a patient before, you know, to and, create and, this An uninfected vaccine. person. Yes. That's a better way of putting it than yeah, patient. Yeah. 
I mean, I guess you're technically a patient as soon as you walk through the door, but uninfected person is much more accurate. Uh, so, but this sounds like it depends on the fact that you do have a fully functioning immune system, right? Yeah, you don't want to you don't want to give the sort of treatment to someone who has a compromised immune system mm-hmm. because it will mean that there's still the possibility the virus could or bacterial infection could take hold and cause yeah. m- really severe medical complications. Yeah. Because it, it depends this this system depends upon uh, your all of your immune cells being up and ready to go. Yep. Yeah, because otherwise you can't develop the immunity. And in fact, I should say most or, or at least several vaccines require multiple doses over time in order for you to actually get to the level of immunity. Uh, uh, many of them, like a one shot, is not enough to have lifelong immunity. Some of them there are. Yeah, right? and, and, and some some uh, some pathogens are too virulent to risk exposing that much of of a of the pathogen at, at a single time. Very good point. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And some are so virulent that you can't go with the live attenuated vaccine approach. Uh, yeah, yeah. And in that case, you can use inactivated vaccines, which, which sound like the vaccine itself is inactive. That's not what it means. Inactivated vaccines use dead or inactivated viruses or bacteria. Then there's a uh, toxoid vaccines, which sounds like it comes from trauma films, but doesn't. Uh, toxoid vaccines are used to treat bacterial diseases that produce toxins. So the vaccines themselves contain a weakened version of those toxins, and those are called toxoids. So when the body's immune system encounters the toxoids, it learns how to fight off the actual toxins. It's kind of like building up an immunity to iocane powder over time. Okay. So that way when Vizzini comes to you and gives you a mind game, you can choose whichever, you know, whichever, whichever vial cup you want. You want. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't matter. Yeah, you can put you can put the syphilis in both cups. That's right. Uh then you have subunit vaccines. Uh this is where a vaccine is sublet to another vaccine. Actually, no, that's not true. Subunit vaccines contain just bits of a virus or bacteria. Uh, it doesn't need to have an entire um, organism. Yeah, yeah. Or, or or virus is a little complicated. Yeah, right? yeah. I microbe, said that and I then guess. thought, okay, yeah, it doesn't need to have an yeah. entire microbe. I, I mean, virus is such a tricky thing, man. We could do a full. In fact, that we have talked about viruses a lot in this in this podcast. They're fascinating. Uh, but yes, you, you need to have some part of the microbe, but you don't need the whole thing. Um, by limiting that pathogenic material to just the bits you need for the body to build up an immunity, you reduce the possibility of really severe side effects. You're probably still going to have some because it's your immune system kicking in. And again, like we've said before, a lot of your symptoms are really your immune system reacting, not necessarily the pathogen itself. Um, then you have conjugate vaccines. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. These are vaccines that have uh well it's, this is weird, right? Conjugate vaccines are all about kind of fooling your immune system into fighting the the pathogen you want them to fight. Uh you use this to protect against bacteria that have antigens that are coated by something called polysaccharides. This is like a sugar-like coating. Mm-hmm. So this sugar-like coating on the antigen disguises the antigen. So your immune system doesn't see it. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so that one of your when one of your T cells bumps up against one of these invading cells and goes like, "Hey, what are you? Are you chill? Are you not chill?" Right. It doesn't find any of those antigens that would say, "Oh, I'm not chill." Yeah, this this or even I'm I'm not uh, okay. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That that this invading microbe. It's like it has an identifying badge that's turned the other way around. Mm-hmm. 
And the T cell's just like, ah, you're probably fine. And, uh, move so, along, move along. <laughs> exactly. So conjugate vaccines connect polysaccharides to antigens so that the immune system recognizes that these are in fact foreign microbes that need to be fought off. Um, and it's, uh, an interesting approach, right? It, it's linking uh, the, the idea of this particular polysaccharide represents this particular type of, of microbe. And it's a little more indirect than some of the other methods we're talking about, um, which is pretty awesome. So we're going to conclude this episode by talking about some of the diseases that people have developed vaccines for. This isn't necessarily a completely exhaustive list, but it's a pretty, pretty decent sized list of diseases for which we have vaccines. Smallpox, the thing that we started talking about, uh, that's a big one. It has been eradicated through vaccination. People don't get smallpox anymore. That's yeah. it's gone. And now the question is: uh, Should we preserve tiny samples of it or destroy them? So you know, we 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 assume that it seems to be dead in the wild. Yeah, uh, we've got some samples of it in labs around the world. Uh, should those labs keep them or not? I think there are good cases to be made on both sides. Sure. Right? Like that keeping it could help us develop protections in case it were to ever resurge in the wild. Yep. Uh, but then again, on the other hand, like if, yeah, if you're just keeping around, you don't, you don't want the stand, right? Right. You yeah. Don't want Stephen King's The Stand to break out. Yeah. Uh, cause that's a long book. <laughs> no, that's not why. <laughs> but anyway, uh, also polio, uh, we talked about that briefly. That's a viral infection that is close to being eradicated through vaccination, though there's still limited outbreaks in different parts of the world. Mm-hmm. And then here are all the, uh, not all, but here's a list of some of the, Vaccines we have for bacterial infections, that would include anthrax, uh, HIV, or Hib, uh, diphtheria, uh, meningococcal disease, like meningitis, mm-hmm. uh, whooping cough, also known as pertussis, uh, pneumococcal diseases, uh, that's the cause of bacterial pneumonia, not viral pneumonia, uh, tetanus, and typhoid. The typhoid vaccine is not 100% effective. It does create a resistance to typhoid, but... You are not guaranteed to be immune to typhoid mm-hmm. should you get that vaccine. Okay, that's the bacterial end. How about the viral end? Hepti- hepatitis A and B. We have uh, vaccines for both of those. Uh, shingles, like we mentioned before, and chicken pox. The, the, again, the virus that causes shingles is also the virus that causes chicken pox. Uh, HPV, uh, influenza, although more on that in our next episode. Measles, mumps, rotavirus, rubella, yellow fever, all of those are viral infections for which we have vaccines. So it's so a really pretty, impressive that's list. That's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah There's some big names that aren't on that list. Yeah. <laughs> but but that's that's amazing. And it shows that we've come a long way. Yeah. Like go team humanity. Like these are it, it's it's hard to imagine in in this day and age the amount of just disastrous tragedy that these diseases caused. Yeah. Yeah. It's like every year. <laughs> like like the fact that, that people our age have never had to worry about smallpox. It's, it's hard to get across how huge that is when you're talking about a disease that has been a scourge on humanity, pretty much the entire history that we had civilized humans. Mm-hmm. So that's a big deal. And uh, especially as more and more of us uh, live in urban centers and, and mm-hmm. live within easy infection range of a lot of other people. Sure. And, of course, also the population growth in places where 
you have other uh, pathogenic vectors at play. Uh, obviously, it also depends upon where you live in the sense of your access to vaccines. That's something that we'll talk about more yeah. in our second episode. Uh, but this really was all about setting that foundation, that understanding to realize, wow, vaccines are pretty awesome. And the future is going to be super interesting, fascinating, really. Uh, and we're going to talk more about that in our next episode. So I guess I'm going to have to give everyone a reminder. If you have suggestions for future episodes of Forward Thinking, or you've got questions, something that we didn't cover that maybe you would like to hear more about, send them to us. Our email address is fwthinking at howstuffworks.com. Or you can always drop us a line on Twitter or Facebook. If you search on Facebook for FW Thinking, we'll pop right up. You can leave us a message. We are FW Thinking on Twitter. You can just tweet us there. And we will talk to you again about vaccines really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. With the new Dexcom G7, you can achieve better diabetes results without painful finger sticks. It sends your glucose numbers to your compatible phone or watch so you can always see where you are and where you're heading. See how food and exercise affects your glucose, making it easier to spend more time in range and lower your A1C. Take more control of your diabetes with the number one recommended CGM brand. It's easy to get started today at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com slash compatibility. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. 
And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.